Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Boom Goddess Podcast Project with your hosts, myself, Dr. Andrea Goldmarks, Jennifer Davis-Page, and Bibi Peters. This podcast aims to ignite inspiration in primetime women by creating a super learning community, a safe space for all women to contribute their voices and visions. For more information on this episode, and to learn more, visit us at boomgoddessradio.com. We're talking about self-care today. What a subject. It's huge. We're starting again with a small exposure to it, and then we'll see where we go from here. Do you see that, that there are topics that only uh, last a very short time, or are, are all the topics that we'll be engaging in are uh, part three and four and five? Yeah, just <laughs> as you were saying that, I had this image that we're opening the door today on self-care. Well, th- so welcome, everyone. This is B.B. Peters, and with me is Dr. Andrea Gould and Jennifer Davis-Page. For right now, this topic of self-care, I feel like we are unzipping the biggest uh, bag of some sort to talk about what that is. Right. So when I think about that metaphor of opening the door, the door opens, and it's a little bit like the Chronicles of Narnia, because all of a sudden there's a whole landscape in front of us that starts with stress and goes on to reveal our habits, our upbringing, the shaping forces in our life, the forces from the past that shaped us and the way we habitually respond to challenges or just our day-to-day. And then, of course, there's the situational stresses and the circumstantial stresses and the stresses that are different today than they were in the past. Yes, and so where do you think the actual term comes from and how long has it been around? Is it a modern term? Well, stress itself is a physics term. Self-care, actually. Oh, self-care. Yes. Okay. So self-care became more um, in the cultural awareness, I think, as our uh, study of psychology became a more public uh, phenomenon, as well as not only the study of psychology, but the very specific practice of psychotherapy. And so when that became um, available or more open, then the concept of self-care became more main street? Mainstream. Um, I, I think that what began to happen is that as we as therapists began listening to the stories that our patients and clients were sharing with us, we collectively began to recognize that there was a correlation between um, stress and a lack of well-being. That's the broadest way to put it. So very often, the negative side of stress would create a state of disequilibrium or a feeling of being out of balance, certainly a feeling of heightened anxiety, and also a feeling of depression. And Hans Selye, S-E-L-Y-E, Hans Selye, was an original researcher who differentiated between good stress, which he called U-stress, E-U stress, and distress, which we know as distress. And he was the one that first made that distinction and also said that good stress was clearly good for you. You know, the way we want to stress ourselves with being self-competitive, running that extra mile, completing that extra task, the excitement of learning something new. And we know about that. Right, right, right. 
<laughs> or falling in love, which <clears throat> is stressful, but it's stressful in a positive way. Having a new child in the family, stressful in a positive way. New job, a challenge in a positive way. And then there's the stress that creates distress. So uh, one of the words that really uh, stood out for me was the word balance. And so would you say then that self-care has to do with bringing balance to our lives, both in the physical sense and in the spiritual or or psychological sense? First, let me say that a lot of people might object to even the, the concept that life could ever really be balanced. I think balanced is kind of more of a subjective opinion that any of us might hold on a given day. In other words, I had too much work, or I had too much childcare, or I had too much illness and not enough fun, right? So in that sense, we could say that self-care might might bring us into an awareness of what are the components of a life that help us feel a sense of well-being. And do you see that as a possible way of prolonging life, of uh, making life uh, richer, of more um, abundant? I think, again, it would be a subjective sense that people may enjoy a life of extreme risk and good stress without balance and claim that they've had a very full life. So. I'm unwilling to kind of go there, but our our own personal experience of when life feels good to us or what are the activities that we engage in that give us a sense of pleasure and a sense of spaciousness and a sense of competence and um, well-being, I think, is really a good word to feel a sense of well-being so the things that we do the things that we engage in that give us all those things that would be self-care certainly our um, ability to choicefully engage in the things that make us feel good that help us feel better about ourselves uh, at that at the end of the day one might say i've had a good day and i'm grateful for my ability to take a walk or for my ability to love or the fun I can have with my friends. Like you had a great day the other day. I did. It was a just a fantastic day. Uh, a whole bunch of girlfriends and I went uh, to Sonoida and did a wine uh, tasting with a driver. So we were not concerned about consuming alcohol um, and uh, we could go and visit the wineries, have a beautiful uh, um, lunch. And it was a glorious day all around. Yeah. And that is part of self-care, isn't Absolutely. It? To be able to choose the kinds of ingredients that go into creating a good day. Yes, the ingredients. I love that term. Yeah. So the girlfriends? The wine. The easy breezy driving. The beautiful weather that we so often have here in Tucson. And the ease with which the whole day went with. That was really terrific. And when we come back, I'd like to spend a little bit more time on the word ease. So we're back with Dr. Andrea Gould and Jennifer Davis-Page. And this is B.B. Peters, and we're talking about self-care. A humongous uh, topic. We just um, defined what it means, and it was the ingredients that we uh, supply to ourselves in our life to bring us perhaps balance and joy and something that gives us ease. And I know that, uh, Dr. Andrea, you wanted to chat a little bit more about that word, ease. Ease, yes. Love that word, Bibi. And it is, I would say, a qualifier. So we might say, if we're feeling stressed, that something is requiring too much effort 
you know, that could even be a relationship is requiring so much effort or, you know, even just a, a doing our hair might be, doing hair is a really good example or getting all elaborately dressed or groomed for the day could be something that takes a lot of effort. It either could result in pleasure. For a lot of people, it results in stress. It's too hard. And I remember a friend of mine who was a swimmer, and she had very, very long hair. And I remember one day coming into, this is when I was a school psychologist, I came into the faculty room. She was an English teacher. And all of a sudden, she had cut her hair really short. And we were all shocked. Why did you cut your hair so short, we said. And she said, it was just too much of a hassle when I swam, and so it's much easier this way. And that stuck with me. I mean, that information really got my attention, that there was such a thing as easier. So it sounds to me like she must have been feeling some uh, tension about it, and perhaps over a period of time, she came to the conclusion, because she was listening to the inner voice that told her that that would make her life easier. Right, or the kind of thing that you're expecting that you're going to make dinner, and then you run out of energy, and you say, you know, it would be a whole lot easier if we ordered in, or it would be a whole lot easier if we went out. And those little micro decisions in the course of a day could be could really make a difference in terms of reducing stress. So it's not always the hot tub with a wonderful tub and uh, and uh, bubbles and, and candle lights and right. aromatherapy. It's not always that. It could be anything, right? What has it been for you? Can you share some of those ease type of um, elements that you engage in your life? Well, certainly going out to, to dinner rather than cooking is one after a busy day that sometimes I really engage in. But it's funny that you mentioned, that you asked me that question because I remember being very tense as a college student. I guess it was around finals time. And I was young, maybe 19. And I was distressed with the fact that I was distressed. Like, why am I so tense, I said to myself, as a young psychology student. Why was I so stressed? And then I said, I did, you know, I knew that it was the pressure of finals and being a student and students by the way do experience tremendous stress just being the age that we are yes. at 19 and then the love relationships and the friendships as many stressors if you will but I thought to myself you know when I was a child I wasn't so stressed how did I relax I said to myself and then I remembered that I colored and I was great at coloring with crayons or colored pencils so I remember leaving my university and driving in my car to the mall where I got a coloring book that was like Peter Rabbit coloring book because they didn't have at that point adult coloring books. No, that's right. So I got a big pack of crayons at that point because I could. Like, wow, you know, I didn't have to ask my mom if I could get another, yet another box of crayons. <laughs> and I sat under a tree on a college campus and just colored in my Peter Rabbit book, and it was such a good feeling. And so for me, as a grown-up, working with colored pencils is an example of a, something that just makes me feel easy and relaxed. That's fantastic. Well, and you? And me. Um, I enjoy walking so much and connecting with nature. At some point in time, I had headphones on and thought that, you know, music was great to have it on. But in the last couple of years, I've uh, actually taken that out of my walks. And now I'm so in tune to multi levels and tiers of different birds just chirping and singing and uh, communicating. And I feel so strong and present particularly here in Tucson when we have this beautiful sunshine every single day. Um, so that's one of the things. I love to dance. You know, um, Zumba is so relaxing to me. It gets my body moving. I connect with the music, particularly the Latin stuff that is just so hot and crazy. Um, I also uh, just meditating 
you know, I haven't been doing that all that many years, but since I have explored it more and put more of it into my life during the past, I would say five years, I'm noticing such a difference. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. So just in this little uh, segment, we've identified a little bit of some of the cognitive or mental or the mind aspects of reducing our stress and making things easier, which is very simply the question, how might I make things easier for myself? What might I eliminate? What might I shift in such a way as to make it more easeful? And then, of course, we have the physical, like the walking and the dancing, and uh, and sitting in the hot tub with the bubbles using the aromatherapy diffuser. And then there's, of course, the spiritual. Meditation being one aspect of the spiritual. So maybe when we come back, we can go a little bit more deeply into those modalities. That would be great, Bibi. Well, welcome back. We are engaged in a what I think is a wonderful conversation about self-care, and uh, Bob, Barbara and 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 Andrea were t- and I were talking about the ABCs of it. There's some of us that that weren't educated about it as young women, and we had to get through life the best way we could, raising children, marriage, uh, parents, siblings, even. And so now, Dr. Andrea, what, what do we do? What, what are the ABCs of self-care? I mean, I'm a late starter. I've just admitted that I'm not even quite sure I know how to do it now at 70. All right, so now what, what, what do we do? How, how do we tell our listeners, our, our, our late starters as I am, okay, that it's okay to start? Yeah, right, because no matter when you start, it's at least a beginning, right? right? Exactly. And if we don't start, then there's no chance. So what's the beginning? Well, you know, I'll, I'll, use, I'll throw out an A. I'll, I'll throw out an okay. actual A. The A is awareness. So how do we develop awareness? Let me be very graphic. If one were to take 10 minutes and lay down flat, and do, for instance, one of the things that we call a body scan, where you lie on the floor and, and you literally see what the sensations are that are going on in your body. What's going on in your feet? Mm-hmm. Is there a tightness in your knee? Are there muscles that are pulling? What does your midsection feel like? How does your stomach feel? How does your gut feel? Is there a burning in your throat? Is there a burning in your stomach? Are there sensations in your body? Is there a tension at the back of your neck? Where is that tension? Can you identify, is it in your head or is it in your neck? Is it in your shoulders? Is it in your back? Are you keeping your hands clenched? Is your breathing short? That's what we refer to as a body scan. And if I had to think of the first A for ABCs, it would be awareness. And possibly in addition to that, maybe doing a scan about your emotional uh, state as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're feeling agitated, if you're feeling, are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling antsy, right? Adding that element to it would be helpful and as well. Very, one, yeah, one helpful. of the ways of doing that is either to have a conversation with a trusted other, or one of my all-time favorite ways for that kind of awareness is to use a journal and to simply make an entry. I'm sitting here having my tea. I'm feeling anxious about this. I'm feeling nervous, or I'm feeling comfortable, or I'm for the first time all day, I'm actually sitting and being quiet. To write the words down, to find words that describe where you are in any given moment is the most tremendously helpful um, exercise in awareness. 
that anybody can have. And I wonder if you could almost put a percentage value on that. By simply recognizing it, it seems that maybe 70 or 80% of the condition goes away. And you're only left with 20 or 30 to deal with. To deal with. And that's funny because I always say that awareness is 75%. Perfect. Right? Right? So you got that right as the number (laughs) Right. And that's and and that's that's the beginning. And that's really, you know, in the nineteen fifties and sixties when psychotherapy got started, we would do something called an awareness continuum where you'd sit and say what you're aware of. That's all. So I'm the therapist, you tell me what you're aware of. I'm aware of a breeze coming in. I'm aware of a silence. I'm aware of an itch on my knee. I'm aware of a ringing in my ears. Whatever it is, if you reel out all of those awarenesses, you're going to get a snapshot of where you're at. Well, this is a very positive A beginning because over the years, I have been gifted journals, beautiful, beautiful bound journals. And guess what? They're empty. They're empty. I would believe it. And I may want to come and, and grab one of those journals because I'm all out. <laughs> but I, I have a B. I have a B for you. Okay. And the B is belief. What do you believe? What do you believe are your rights? What do you believe about your entitlement? What do you believe about staying healthy? What do you believe about integrity in relationships? What do you believe about honesty? These are all excellent questions. These are all things that every woman should think about. And you've been talking about journaling since I've known you. And so I am going to, I think my only hesitance was always uh, fearful that someone would read my, my heart, my thoughts, and I didn't want that. But you're saying it's perfectly okay for that to, I mean, when we're dead and gone and our granddaughters pick up our journals, They'll get to know us a whole lot better, won't they? That's right. I think a lot of people are, are very concerned, and, and many rightfully so, about what they write down as their truths. But there are measures that you can take um, to protect yourself about things like that. You know, I mean, there are certain people who, you know, you, you have your hiding places, or certain people may believe that nothing should be hidden. So you need to take a look at your rights what you feel are rights to your own privacy. There are, you can password protect a file on the computer very easily if you really are concerned about that. We didn't used to have that ability. Right. We, people would find our actual notebooks. But is the computer, because as I'm saying, I've got empty journals. So is it better to write with a pen in our generation? And we've, we've talked about it on other shows or go to the computer? Is it is it more therapeutic to write than to go on the computer and enter it into a program? The research indicates that it's better to write longhand, that it's better for your neurology, that it's better for your brain. Personally, for me, I've longhanded journals for since I'm 20, so for over 40 years. But most of what I do these days is I, I do it on the computer because my thoughts are so rapid okay. and that's the way I'm able to do it on a regular basis in a more disciplined way. I think I'm gonna start with my empty books and a pen. And you have a place the, in mind? Yes, I do. I do have a place in mind. and. I'm going to just do a page at a time. I don't know how far you can go back, but I might not be able to remember all the good stuff that I'd like to write down. But can you can put it in any order that comes to you. Is that right? You certainly can. I'm just reminded of a client I had who, who had her journal, and she would turn it upside down and randomly enter pages, sometimes in the back, sometimes in the front. She would write one page with the date. She was an artist. And it would be this potpourri of different pages and different different times. I think one suggestion would be that we start in the here and now and just describe this very day. So pick the day that it is, mm-hmm. write the time that it is, 
write what you're paying attention to, write about the setting that you're in, write about as much detail as possible that's around you, and then you can begin to write what you're aware of. And date and time? Date and time. Okay. And allow yourself to just log that in. That would be a beginning. And the way you're describing it, to use a pen and notebook and maybe sit outside or sit at the kitchen table or sit in a quiet place, go to a cafe, go up to a, a, just change your venue. I think changing your venue is often very helpful. And, and just be, you're in a trance at that point. It's a meditation. The way you're planning to do it is like a meditation and a self-care in itself, regardless of what you write. That's wonderful information. And I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners are just like me. Come on, girls, let's get started. Let's start writing. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know at some subsequent show how, how it's making me feel. Welcome back to the spirited conversation that we're having with Jennifer Davis Page, B.B. Peters, and myself, Dr. Andrea. And we're talking about the roots of how each of us had very different training in terms of our boundaries. And, and even though all three of us are in the boomer generation, we really had three different times in our life when we became awakened to the fact that it was up to us to set our boundaries and it was up to us to take care of ourselves and to communicate about what our needs were. Well, we are the three of us are very different and we entered into this uh, into let's just say self-care at very different times and for very different reasons or didn't enter into it at all for a very long time. All right, so I was a young mother. I had a-, a How a, old? Oh, I had my first son when I was 17 years old. That's pretty young. That's very young, all right? So now I have to grow up faster than a lot of women do for 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 those obvious reasons, all right? So, so and I'm married at an early age, understanding, or not understanding how that man-woman thing works in a marriage. So now I'm thrust into this, you know, then have two more sons. And so I'm thrust into a doing everything for everybody, not even knowing that Jennifer needs to pay attention to herself for a very long time. Because by the time I hit the stop button, I was, I was an older woman. I raised my children, gone through career, and I didn't even know that there was a stop button. And I think that's really important as we look at each of the each of our set and, and we each represent obviously a large segment of the boomer female boomer population. Yes, I was thinking about where how did my time and change or the idea of knowing that I had the rights to for uh, self-care or to sort of be my own woman when did that start to arise and probably from the work force you know as i worked with um, the large companies um, you had to be strong and independent but the most uh, poignant area and time was i think through watching the oprah show um, some 26 or 7 years ago when she first came out she began to really talk about that and how spirituality and uh, meditation and other forms of self-care were so important to our overall health and a little bit time over time i began to understand and, and incorporate those into my own life we love that oprah was so much a spokesperson really for the um, human potential movement when we were ready to hear it that way 
So as a young woman, I was in college studying psychology during the height of the human potential movement, which was when we were doing encounter groups. We had the women's movement. We had consciousness raising groups. I was barely out of my teens when that became the centerpiece of my understanding of life as an adult. So in a consciousness raising group, you could have 10 or 11 women between the ages of, let's say I was 18 or 19, and there were some young mothers who were in their 30s, probably not more of an age spread than 15 years. And we spoke outright about our relationships, about sex, about birth control, about planning our children, about being able to say no. those were the, um, that's what the zeitgeist was. That was the spirit of the times, was about women's independence. So many relationships broke up so early, particularly at that time, because women were really beginning to find their own voice. But again, we say the late 60s, that was the beginning, mid to late 60s, of women beginning to find their voices. At the same time, my personal journey was that I was in college studying psychology. And what were we studying? We were studying stress. We were studying pathology. We were studying defense mechanisms. We were studying the ways that we could stave off mental illness and the causes for mental illness, both severe mental illness and commonplace um, illnesses or or, um, manifestations like depression and anxiety. But you were in college and you and your... your, um, Cronies. Your your cronies. (laughs) I mean, and you were being educated about this. But what happens to... What happens to Jennifer? What happens to the Jennifers, for example? Well, that's exactly why Oprah came to be, because Oprah was interested in taking that information out of the, out of academia, out of private practice, out of uh, where people were talking about mental health, and bringing it into into everyday life, bringing it through the television set at four o'clock in the afternoon so that people could be watching and she could be speaking and and illuminating all of that for people, for the average population. That's why her show became so popular. Absolutely. But I was 42 years old when Oprah turned on, was on ABC. So okay. are you saying that it's too late to learn that skill at 42? No, or you not didn't at have all. the opportunity? It didn't have the opportunity. It, it wasn't something. Now, for the, I was, say, 42. I remember I was living in Chicago when I turned on television, and there she was. I was thrilled to see an African-American woman on television. It was called AM Chicago at the time. It wasn't the Oprah Winfrey show. So it was a local show. And she came on, and she didn't look like what Hollywood wanted their television personalities to look like. She had a short afro. All right, she was overweight. She didn't look at all like um, people thought a, a, a television celebrity should look. But, and I think as a result of watching her for so many years, and I think when the two of you got her, she was the Oprah Winfrey show. Is that correct? She was now Probably a star. in New York, right. She was now a star, and she had the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, but, no, I'm not saying that at 42 it's too late. But a lot has happened in uh, 20 or 30 years before Oprah. Before Oprah. Well, before, before awareness. Before awareness. Ex- because exactly. you know, by the time Oprah was, in a sense, broadcasting the result of research and wisdom and accumulated experience of of other women, it was also being filtered through um, life in general and it was finding its way into people's consciousness. The question is, well, a couple of things, I mean, you raise that, that when we go through 20, 30 years of extended stress, that definitely drains our batteries and it gives us first the idea that we need a bit to to get to ground zero and recover ourselves before we can really start implementing let's say a way of life that's more self-protective
Jen Davis Page, B.B. Peters, and myself, Dr. Andrea, are continuing our conversation about stress and self-care. And we were just talking about how hard the self-imposed stresses are and how different they are than stresses, let's say, of running around after a small child or the stress of having a financial burden or the stress of taking care of someone. But if we go one level deeper inside, we come up against the stress that we put on ourselves. So is it a conception or a preconception that we have as to what it is and what makes us feel that way? It's so interesting because I think the first one that comes to mind, and wouldn't you agree, is perfectionism. Yes. So, of course, we could easily see, we don't have to even be psychologists to see, that we can so easily pick up perfectionistic traits from a parent or a role model or an older sibling or a mentor or boss. It's important to be perfectionistic when it comes to A, B, and C. So certainly that's something perhaps that we're not born with, although my clinical experience, I have... I have known babies as young as 18 months old who were obsessive and compulsive. So some of the trait is inborn. So some of it is inborn and some of it is socially applied. I remember uh, growing up and bringing my uh, report card back home and being an only you know, child, there were a lot of expectation on me to perform. And my dad would uh, approve of my grades, but if there was an A minus, he would say that needs to come up. Why isn't that an A? Yeah. And that's a a very common story. So that's definitely one source when we're actually graded and we want to achieve perfect scores. And then there's the kinds of things that children will become perfectionistic about their handwriting or keeping their rooms a certain way. I've known as many kids that have been perfectionistic about keeping their rooms neat as I do kids who were didn't have that trait on the opposite end. But what happens when a woman becomes perfectionistic? And does it show? Do we see it? Or is that one of the hidden stresses that women walk around with? Well, and also what um, degree of perfectionism does a woman get engaged in? You know, is it is caring so caring about ourselves and how we look, whether it be our hair or our makeup, is sort of on the verge of perfectionism. So you could have some care about it, but then when you're a perfectionist and you can't leave your room until every single little piece of your hair is in place, that's the other side of it, right? So how do we get to that comfortable, easy middle point? Well, I think that's an interesting question, and I think that does change a little bit with age. As I recall uh, being a psychologist in a middle school or being in middle school myself, and all the young women would line up at the mirror critiquing each other's hair and makeup. even better. Even better having others critique us. Right, 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 and clothes. I mean, I think we really get trial by fire in middle school and high school. I think that once a woman develops into the next level of her growth, particularly around having children, the perfectionism comes out once again, as well as the perfectionism around housekeeping. And I'm looking right into your blue eyes. (laughs) Because you have a feeling that my house is always picked up, right? Right, Right. certainly picked up, always perfect. No newspapers lying around, no mail. I have 17 pens on my auxiliary conference table. I certainly don't need 17 pens out there, but you know, I, I, at least I line them up and they're not all scatter, scattered like pickup sticks. Yes, and I love your great array of magazines as you first enter your house. And you can just pick one out of 12 or 13 magazines in case you wanted to be to be entertained that afternoon. <laughs> That's right, and, and we're never bored here in this environment. So there is <laughs> perfectionism around cleanliness. And there is perfectionism about raising children. 
And there is perfectionism about raising children and in some generations having dinner on the table, uh, keeping up with one's social engagements. There's a lot of what we call self-imposed stresses. And we can hear in one of the conversations that we had with um, our Southwest correspondent on self-care, senior Southwest correspondent on self-care, Barbara Isley. Let's hear how she describes becoming aware of her limits and the importance of rest. For me, it's a matter of recognizing that doing does not equal accomplishment. Doing has always been how I thought I would get my accomplishment. But what I'm finding is the feedback I'm getting from people is that by telling my story and by sharing the importance of following what needed to be done and being willing to be vulnerable about that is what has really inspired people to take, in some cases, to look at themselves differently. I have been sharing my journey through an on-site Caring Bridge journal and people can't say enough about how much my vulnerability and authenticity has helped them. That's really not the world of doing that I always have lived in. So the question is, when can we just stop sometimes and say, okay, this is a self-care show, all right? So when do we say to ourselves, Let's look out for let's look out for me. Why am I looking out for everybody else and everybody else doesn't seem to be looking out for themselves? So, it sounds like you're asking, what does it take for us to stop and take stock about meeting our own needs? What does it take for us to even realize that we have needs? Is that something we realize before disaster strikes or does it take a little mini disaster or major disaster to get us to actually cancel everything and say I need time for myself and when do we stop feeling guilty about that that's the other thing you know um, I have been um, sick and as a result of my being sick everybody in the house became ill so now everybody in the house is ill waiting for me to get better so that they can be cared for. All right, and now, so this is past having kids, past having uh, responsibilities in that arena, and yet still those demands are upon you. So uh, how do we uh, overcome that? How do we partition that out of our life in a nice uh, conscious way so that others won't get hurt by it and yet we're giving ourselves more space in which to get better ourselves. I used to have a client who used to yearn for one small room mm. where she could just be without anybody imposing their demands and it was really a wish, it was a, a dream wish that she could just be alone by herself. And did it happen? Did her wish come true? Did she make that happen? She, she did make it happen. Ultimately, she did make it happen. Before we can make anything happen, we need to have a vision of what might help. And sometimes we go and go and go without the awareness of the way we're being drained. Or sometimes we have awareness that we're being drained, but we think there's nothing we can do about it, no way of correcting it, no way of stopping until our body stops us. And so often it has to do with health, it seems. Like our correspondent, Barbara, like Jennifer now, and talking about her health, it seems that that breaking point is the body failing and being it being the alert sign that something's going wrong. Sometimes people say that the body doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. And it your body tells you, you know, when, when somebody gets into bed and they sleep for 10 hours, your body is now telling you, you need to just shut it down for a moment, relax, and go to sleep. And it and allows you to do that. Um, 
But I think that we need to have a conversation about having a conversation with our loved ones so that they can understand how this is affecting you. Because we, you know, we're kind of like robots at times. We just kind of keep going and going and going. And everybody thinks that we have an endless source of energy. And you're looking around, you're doing for everybody. There has to be a conversation before your head just blows up. Well, the whole thing is to try to be alert to those signs within ourselves before it gets to the point where it's a breaking point. I can remember as a young mother where I needed time alone, I I took a baseball cap and I wrote L-M-A, which meant leave me alone. And when I had my leave me alone hat on, that meant no further conversation. I'm all talked out. Let's not talk. And when I, I did that with my son, and I remember as he grew older, he would put the LMA hat, hat on. I'd want to go into his room and say, don't you think you ought to clean up your room? Or don't you think? I didn't have one of those kids that was perfectionistic about that. And, and he'd have his LMA hat on. And, you know, what goes around comes around. But it is a way to train boundaries. It is a way, even instead of having a conversation, is to have an agreement that when I'm wearing this hat, that means leave me alone. I think that's an excellent idea. We're putting a lovely boutique together for our website, okay? And we've got hats and caps. And what we need to have an LMA hat. I think it would be fabulous. So that, Excellent. And it would probably be one of our best sellers. <laughs> right. Because once women and men understood what that meant, they're going to buy. That's, that's an excellent idea. That's a, Let's do it. Let's do it. It's wonderful to listen to our friend and correspondent, Barbara, talking about how important it is while taking care of oneself to surrender to what is, at some point to stop fighting about it and to surrender to it, to allow yourself to be vulnerable and to give yourself what you need in order to bring yourself back to a state where you can think clearly about the next steps. There's no way that we can prevent ourselves from having physical vulnerabilities. We get sick, we get the flu, or worse. But once that happens, our body gets our attention. And it's important that we listen to our body and like Barbara was saying, just to lie down and rest, we actually recover. Imagine that. So many of us are so driven. And years ago, you know, years ago when we were young women, well, you were on top of it as a young woman, but years ago, self-care wasn't something that was talked about. So we didn't really know, a lot of us didn't really know what to do or how to care for ourselves. So it's really wonderful that those words self-care come together now and people understand you can you can read about about um items to to buy uh, vitamins and teas and just have a conversation with friends that have have exercised self-care you know in the healthcare system like we've been talking about we can go visit doctors they can tell us a lot or a little bit about our condition. But basically self-care is our own necessary ability to regulate things that are under our control. Sleeping, eating properly, exercising. And we have to begin to think about it as a continuum. We need to take care of ourselves in so many ways before we begin to involve the medical establishment because the way things are going, the medical establishment is not set up to take care of all the small things, all the signals that we see in ourselves. So it's about how we are aware of what's going on in our bodies. It's about our willingness to share with others, especially people in our age group. We have so many similarities about things that are going on in our bodies. And then to know when we care for ourselves and when we need to ask for a big variety of professional help. 
And now uh, medical, uh, our, our, our medical providers are encouraging us to take good care of ourselves. I mean, they, you know, you enter into the silver sneakers, which encourages you to go to the gyms all over the country and to exercise. Uh, so they encourage you to do that, which is which is wonderful because they know that if you continue to take good care of yourself, then the the price of medicines they won't have to incur the price of medicines. And so I I think that the the universe is is, is in step with this, and uh, I'm really delighted that. We we were able to cover it on our show today. Yeah, and it's a it's an introduction. It opens up another door to taking care of ourselves in the presence of family, in the presence of partners, in the presence of people that we live and work with. And that involves being authentic, being honest, being vulnerable, and having the kind of communication skills that really can ensure our own ability to draw the line, to set boundaries, and to be able to care for ourselves while we are in the context of any relationship, whether it's home or work. So I think we look forward to having uh, an episode dealing with the necessary communication in terms of keeping ourselves as healthy as possible, mentally, physically, and spiritually. Thanks for listening. We welcome your suggestions. Please visit our website at boomgoddessradio.com. Reach out to us. Use the Contact Us tab. Let us know what you think and what kind of topics you'd like to hear. Thank you for tuning in today. This is Dr. Andrea, Jennifer, and Bibi, your boom goddesses, signing off. Each voice of wisdom shares ripples out into our universe and inspires so many others. Namaste. For technical reasons, portions of this program have been pre-recorded.